everyone worships. Sure, not everyone wants to call it worship or even think about what they're doing. But everyone worships something. Everyone has some ultimate thing that they center their life around. Something or someone that they hope will give their life meaning or purpose. For some, it's religion. For others, it's money. For some, it's fun. For others, it's success or power. Or science or knowledge. Or beauty. Or popularity. For some, it's love or sex. For some, it's their family. But the Bible says, all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. This means we were created to worship, but there is only one who is really worthy of our worship. That's why nothing else in this world satisfies. We keep on looking, we keep on striving, we keep on buying, but nothing delivers. Nothing brings us that deep satisfaction that we long for. But when you live your life with Jesus as the center, you're doing exactly what you're created to do. You're right in the place you're supposed to be. So the irony is that when we give our lives over to worship Jesus, that's when we actually find ourselves. Everyone worships, but we were made to worship just one. To the Creek, I'm Pastor Matt. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here. Um, if you do us a favor, do us a favor. There's a guest card somewhere in the vicinity of you, um, maybe in a seat back in one of those pockets, or if you're on the front row, it might be under your posterior. But um, if you'd fill that out to the level of your uh, comfort, we would love to just get some information from you. We don't stalk you. We just uh, want to start a dialogue about our church community and um, how God has a plan for you to worship uh, with other people. He designed us in relationship, and we are so excited when we have you here. If you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew 25. I'm sorry, 26. We were in 25 for so long um, that we actually uh, uh, go ahead a chapter. I did the math. We're probably going to finish Matthew before the end of the year. Um, so <laughs> that's what I'm saying now. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But um, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the end of the row for you. If you don't own a Bible, then take one of those. Write your name in it. Make it yours. Um, we desire you to have the Word of God at your uh, access. Um, and also, get in there and check me on it. Don't always take my word for it. Um, filter everything through truth. And truth is found in Scripture. And so you need that, that access. So Matthew 26, we all worship something. We, we are made to worship. And if you think about it, um, we, uh, we, we put value, we put worth on things that we focus on. A lot of things, and I, I'm included in this, I'll, I'll misguide my worship sometimes, and I, I set my sights on something that I, that I want. 
I try to convince Heather that I need it. And uh, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But we all worship something. And, and what's funny, if you look around us, uh, we like to pick on other people based on what they worship. Uh, it, I think it's that, that inner Pharisee in me, or at least it's just me. The inner Pharisee, you know, we like to pick on them because uh, we find ourselves associating with them more often than we like. And so we like to pick on other people when we find our flaw in other people. And uh, we like to point fingers and say, well, that worship is just misguided. You know, they're, they're lost in their worship. That's a waste of worship. And I want to talk this morning about worship or waste and look at an instance that happened to Jesus before he was crucified. And I want us to, to kind of bring it into our life here. And uh, we've got some notes on, your, on the back of your worship guide to follow along with. And this morning, I hope that uh, this isn't just a story that we get into in Scripture. I hope that it just, I hope it gets you to the core and you see the beauty of what is about to happen and that it does something inside. Uh, one thing a mentor of mine told me, he said, you can never preach a passage unless it has absolutely transformed you. This passage, this passage has absolutely transformed me and how I worship my Savior. Um, we all worship something um, at the creek. We worship Jesus. Um, one of our core values is worship. And that's just not the song set, um, which this morning was amazing. Um, Ryan is, is taking a break today, and I leaned over, and I can only imagine that pride that Ryan's probably feeling, a holy pride, um, that Ryan is feeling, because what we saw in here was a product of his leadership. And the one thing that I love about a leader, a good leader, is that he doesn't always have to be the man up front, and he is content to be in the back. He is an amazing worship leader, even from the front row, and developing an amazing ministry. But worship is not just the song set. I think we kind of uh, mix that up sometimes and think worship is just the singing in, in uh, church service, or we'll, we'll, might, we might broaden that definition and say, well, worship is the church service. And I said last week, you spend uh, less than 5% of your time, even if you were like a uh, super go-getter Christian, you spend less than 5% of your time if you just go to a study and a service and, and your week is pretty much drained 95% of the time. And so worship is a part of our lifestyle. We live it. We breathe it. Um, everything we do is laid before the altar as worship to Jesus. Whatever we do, eating, drinking, we do it all for the glory of God. And so we've got to get in this mindset that we can encounter worship with Jesus every second of every day in everything we do, even the most mundane tasks that we find ourselves involved with can be an act of worship and really should be an act of worship before Jesus. And, and really when you bring it down to worship, you know, we kind of made it a church word, but it's really assigning value or worth. I mean, anything that you assign a value to, a high level of worth, you are worshiping. And we have to understand that it's a, it's a mental process. It's a process spiritually that we constantly have to redirect and refocus our worship. Uh, I was out at the uh, Heather's Ranch this weekend, and uh, he is doing very well, by the way. And uh, I've been going out there. Thank you for being patient with me. I've been going out there every week to take care of some stuff out there for him. Um, but I got some time to, to, to shoot a little bit. And what I found is I was looking through the scope of this, this 22 rifle. My eyes play weird things. And I had to constantly refocus on the crosshairs. And I'm trying to see the target, and the crosshairs get blurry. And then when I focus on the crosshairs, the target gets blurry. And I'm sitting there having this weird, you, you guys know me a little bit. I have weird inner monologue. 
And I'm having an inner monologue with myself going, what's wrong with you? I mean, I grew up a country boy. I'm a country boy. I can survive. I know how to do this. But I I was laughing at myself because I couldn't focus. And I think worship is that way. I think on Sundays, we kind of bring the crosshairs into focus. And then what happens is we focus on a different target throughout the week. I want us to center in and focus and place the value on Jesus and place the ultimate worth on him so that we're constantly focused on him. You know, we're constantly in uh, not just prayer, but communion with God. I mean, where we are just, that presence is so saturating in our life. Um, We're going to go into Matthew 26, and uh, we uh, finished a section 21 through 25. Really, the best way to sum it up is Jesus is telling the religious leaders and the people around him, you've got a problem, that you're dealing with hypocrisy, sin has taken over, and you have a problem. And what I love about Jesus is he will never tell us we have a problem without having the solution. He will never tell you you have cancer without giving you the cure. He will never tell you you're a sinner or tell me I'm a sinner without dying for me. And what I love about it, Matthew 21 through 25, you got a problem. 26 and 27 is the next section we're moving into. I've got the solution. And we're going to see some beautiful, beautiful events play out in the life of Jesus and in the gospel story of humanity. I mean, this really is the good news. I, I don't know if it's, if it's struck you. This is not good advice. This is good news. And it, it shapes how we live our life. It shapes how we worship. And as we get into this, I want us to understand that Jesus is not just saying we've got a problem. He's saying, I'm willing to step in to be the solution. I'm willing to pay it all. I mean, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and he stepped in before humanity was ever even considered and said, I will stand in the gap for humanity. And this is where the story just takes an absolute uh, beautiful turn. I want to set it up in 26.1. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, that's all of verse 21 through 20, or chapter 21 through 25. He says, as Jesus finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. The Passover was a celebration, a Jewish celebration. I, I want to give you a little bit of history. I, I don't want to burn the clock giving all of this because we're going to go into detail in a couple weeks on the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and how Passover is a parallel to what Jesus is doing in the upper room. Passover is the celebration that the Jews would go through every year to commemorate and celebrate their exodus out of Egypt. You know, Moses, God calls Moses through the burning bush, says, I want my people out of Egypt, go to the Pharaoh. Jesus, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. You know, that's how we meet Charlton Heston. You know, <laughs> that's, uh, that's how I got to stay up way past my bedtime every spring for three nights as the miniseries would play in Charlton Heston. We go, let my people go. So it's a beautiful thing. So the Passover is when uh, Moses goes before Pharaoh, says, God wants his people out of Egypt. It's time to go. We're, we're, we're vacating the premises. We're taking the CDs and everything, baby. And so they, they start going, but Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. Ain't going to happen. You see, I, I like this relationship because I get what I want and it's free. And so God sends the curse of the plagues. You know, I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, The last one is the curse of the firstborn son. And so uh, Moses tells the Israelite children, the Jewish nation, that on this night you are to put the blood of a spotless lamb on your doorframe as the angel of the Lord comes through. Um, The the blood on the doorframe, the angel will see that and pass over your home. And so the next morning many woke up. Uh, The Pharaoh lost his son. 
Remember Charlton Heston? He had to go talk to him. It wasn't a pleasant conversation. Um, but that was the Passover. And what's a beautiful thing about that, that even reflects the gospel that we're gonna, we're, we're, we hold to today. Because it wasn't whether or not that household was good or bad. It was trust in the blood. You see, salvation isn't based on how good or how bad we are. It's trust in the cross, in the blood of Jesus. It's trust in God that he loves us, that he sent Jesus, that Jesus did walk this road to Calvary, that Jesus did live a sinless life. He was the perfect spotless lamb that was given at the Passover so that we can trust in that blood. And the blood just doesn't go on our door frame. It goes on our life. And we are free. I mean, I I don't think we fully understand that a lot of times in our life, that we're free, that that Jesus through the blood has set us free. The things that will hold us captive shouldn't hold us captive. Our our women are doing a study, Breaking Free by Beth Moore. She makes a comment that that just absolutely drilled me to the heart that I love. She said, breaking free with God, the blood of Jesus shed to make us free is not stronghold management. It's not trying to figure out how to manage these things that hold me down. It is truly breaking free from them and walking without the shackles and without the pain. And that's what's going over at Passover. Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. That's kind of funny. How do you be sly with God? It's like, hey, I'm going to whisper really quiet because... We don't want God to hear us. But not during the feast, they said, or there might be a riot among the people. So the plot begins. You see, Jesus had stepped on a lot of religious toes because he was speaking truth. And the persecution is coming back at Jesus in the form of a plot to murder him. You see, we we don't face persecution that way in our area. You've heard me say it. Most of the persecution we face is because we become jerks and we really step on people's toes because we find our flaws in them and we pick on them. But Jesus is getting ready to be crucified for the sins of man who did not have to do this, who was trying to diagnose a bunch of spiritual nonsense and how people have turned away from God. And he says, I want you back. I want to free you from all of this stuff. And that's the setting. And so uh, let's, get into, let's get into our central passage. This is verse 6. And I want us to understand that as we think about worship or waste, that Jesus is worth our best. I'll be at the front of the line of repentance on this, that I don't always give God my best. And I have to f- ask forgiveness for that. Uh, my best is not reserved for you. My best is not reserved for my marriage or my children. My best is for Jesus. And you know what? This is funny. We, we get in this mindset that, well, if I give my best to Jesus, then everybody else gets the leftovers. You know, that, that's that religious nonsense that Jesus wants to free us from. When I give Jesus my best, it makes everything I give everyone else all the more better. Or the bestest, as we say it in my household. Verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him and with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. I want to stop there. Um, I think it's interesting that, that God sends Jesus to a leper's house. Um, it's very appropriate if you think about it. Let me set up some history here and some, uh, some context 
if Jesus were to go and be with a leper, touch a leper before the Passover, he would be considered unclean and could not participate in any of the Passover festivities. Um, commentary says that Simon is probably a leper that Jesus healed. Um, so how appropriate that Jesus is going to the people that he even dies for, that he goes when he's living. And I love that God sends him there. Mary is the woman that comes in. Mary is Martha's sister and Lazarus's sisters. Um, remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so commentaries say that all of these were there. They were all gathered um, to spend time together. Uh, this is found in other gospels. And sometimes uh, chronologically, they differ. Um, and the reason that is, this is not a contradiction of Scripture. The reason that is, is they're not focused on a chronological timeline of Jesus' life. They're focused on documenting the truth of the gospel. And so when we get hung up, let's not get hung up on little things like that. So when you, I put it in your future study for you to read this account in other gospels. And so when you read that, well, this is way before, this is before Jesus went into Jerusalem. You know, don't get hung up on that. The enemy is going to try to trip you there. Get hung up on the fact and the truth of what's about to happen in the context of this home and in worship of the Messiah. And so Mary comes in and she takes this, this jar of perfume. Now, every Sunday morning, I come in to the courtyard and I'm in shorts and a t-shirt and I change and I bring a bottle of cologne because if I didn't, you wouldn't want to hug any of this mess, okay? This is quite a foul. Um, and so I have to prep for you and uh, get all beautified, I guess. But, you know, I love my cologne and Heather knows which ones to get me and she buys me the ones I like and I'm like, it's just good. But th this isn't just a perfume that you can get from Amazon. This is a perfume that is made from India. Now, they didn't have Amazon back then. That was a couple years before the internet anyway. Um, uh, this perfume came from India and it was called nard or sometimes spike nard because there was a nard plant that they would use the root and sometimes the spikes on that plant to make this perfume. Very expensive. It's estimated that this could be up to a year's wages to purchase this perfume. It was in an alabaster jar that was sealed once you, you had to break the jar to get the perfume out. Once you broke that, you had to use all of the perfume. And so this woman is bringing this gift to Jesus and she breaks it. It, it doesn't say what toil she went through to even say, well, should I do this? You know, what's Jesus gonna think, you know? But she goes and she breaks it. She pours it on his head. The other gospel account says that she poured it on his feet as well. And what I love about this is, is Mary wipes his feet with her hair. Now, before you go, that's nasty. Let me, let me help you with something to show the humility that Mary is going through. A woman's hair in 1 Corinthians tells us that it is her glory, that it covers her head. Think about this scene. I mean, picture it, that this woman is bowing at the feet of the Messiah. She breaks this perfume, pours it over her head. Imagine the aroma the smell, I mean, you know, really expensive perfume has a beautiful smell. We're not talking about Brut by Fabergé here, you know. <laughs> every teenage boy went through that, I promise you. Um, but think about the aroma and the rich, just that, that, that scent that it could be putting off. And she pours it on his head and as it drips through his hair. And she pours it on his feet. And then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Think about her laying her glory at the feet of the Messiah. And this is a beautiful act of worship. You see, this worship cost Mary dearly. 
Every time we worship, it's going to cost us. Worship costs us something every time. And what we have to decide is, is it worth it to give Jesus our best? See, to even come and gather in here, it costs you time. It costs you a morning. It costs you, uh, maybe, maybe the kids were not as willing to get ready and eat, and it cost you some frustration. It cost you some gas. It cost you whatever conversation you had in the car here, which I hope was pleasant. Um, it, it's costing you some calories right now because it's hot. That's a bonus, right? Um, so I do want to point out I brought my two biggest fans today. They're in the back of the room. They just keep turning around, you know. Um, yeah, we're doing everything we can to get the, get the temperature down. Just bear with us. It's just hot. I mean, I, I, you know, the only thing I know to do is, is not going to be appropriate, but hey, um, when you get home later, you can do that. You can lay in your, on your couch naked with the fan on, and you know, that's all your deal. I don't do that. Y'all come over to my house and be like, I ain't sitting on that couch. <laughs> I, I sit in the chair. I'm like, that's where I sit. Oh, my goodness. But Mary lays her glory at the feet of Jesus. It cost her. When we worship Jesus, it costs us something. The, the song says, um, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We get this weird twisted idea and we kind of make it religious nonsense that because Jesus bought us with the blood that we have to begin a process of paying him back. Um, that's not what we owe him. What Jesus wants from us is our best. He wants our worship. He wants us to say, Jesus, you are my God, my Lord and my God. To come to that realization that the transformation happens inside, that the blood of Jesus has covered my life and I'm willing to lay my best because he gave his best. God gave his absolute best and desires that from us. When we get into this process of thinking, I got to pay Jesus back for what he did, the, the grace and the gift is out of the question now. Then we're trying to earn it and we try to work for our salvation and we get in this weird religious cycle where we're never fulfilled. We can't ever find peace. We get caught up in in an abusive grace relationship and God does not desire that of his people. He does not desire that. Jesus did not go to the cross to keep us in bondage to, to this relationship that we feel like we have to constantly work in. He went to the cross so that grace could cover us so that we could have freedom. And through that freedom, we do what we're designed to do, and that's to worship him with everything that we have. What is beautiful about this, uh, imagine this scene a couple of days later, um, that as they place the crown of thorns on Jesus's head, or they drive the nails through his feet, what did they have to drive those nails through or place the crown through? Mary's worship. Now think about it too. He's laying there and insults are being yelled at Jesus. And he starts to think of the smell of this perfume. What's a greater sense of of recall on memory? Hearing or smell? Smell. As he's laying there, think about it. I'm sure that smell wafted through him. And as he's laying there in the most unimaginable pain that he's thinking, the best was laid on me. And it's worth it. And I think the insults and the pain start to go drown out because that smell fills them. And that aroma of worship begins to overtake. I love how God is encouraging his son that even as he's putting him through the most excruciating process imaginable. If you've ever used the word excruciating, that's a word that came from the cross. It's excrucis. It means from the cross. And God is not cruel for putting him through. God is kind Jesus is not a victim. Jesus willingly took this on. 
and we try to play Jesus as the victim and we might feel sorry for him. Now, I don't want you to come to faith in Jesus because you feel sorry for him. Let me tell you, Jesus is a man. He stepped up. He said, I, I will own that. And he did. But as he's laying there going through that pain, imagine that sense of smell. And he says, that is worship. That is why I am doing this. Because we created them to worship. And this is the ultimate sacrifice to bring freedom in that worship. Let's go on here. Verse uh, 8 through 10. Jesus is worth the criticism we face because just as we don't understand worship and we miss that focus sometimes, let me tell you something. There are people that look at us and say, "Uh, that's just misguided. That's just ridiculous. How can you worship God? I don't understand all of that. That's good if it's for you. But we we will find criticism for our faith. When we make sacrifices for Jesus, we will find criticism. I mean, if you, if you mention to people, yeah, I, you know, I tithe at my church. What? In this economy? And you might face some criticism for that. For you getting up early on a Sunday morning and showing up to unload a trailer and transform a daycare into what you see, you may get some criticism for it. But Jesus is worth that criticism. It doesn't mean that we go in and invite criticism. Like, um, I just need some daily criticism for humility you know, Jesus, I got my criticism today. Do you love me? <laughs> Remember, we just talked about that crazy relationship. Verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they ask? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. What I think is interesting, um, other, other gospels say Judas led this charge, but Peter also joined in. Like, yeah, wh- what's up with this? I mean, Jesus, that money, I mean, you think about the amount of money being poured on his head. I mean, they're like, man, what a waste. And, and sometimes criticism is going to come from people you don't expect. Sometimes it's going to come from those closest to you. And the disciples are looking at this and going, well, wait a second, because we are to minister to the poor, and this woman, man, she could have done, think about how many meals she could have bought. Think about how many clothes she could have bought. Think about how much she could have done for the the Jesus Benevolence Fund with that perfume. I, I honestly, I look at that sometimes, but we have to get back to this. It is worship. Mary is laying her worship at the feet of Jesus. It's not up to others to decide whether it's worship or waste. It's up to Jesus. You you see, we have to get out of this process of letting other people's criticism hinder our worship. I I think of it like when when you're in a setting. um, I used to volunteer in kids' church back in the day. And uh, I played played bass guitar for them. And there was a song that that we did. It was called, What If I Said Jesus Real Loud? And the song's like doors open on the elevator. So I can't remember how it goes, but it's like, and then all of a sudden it goes, what if I said Jesus real loud? And I think about that sometimes. It's like, you know, sitting in a a movie theater or, you know, in line somewhere. If I just yelled Jesus, you know, (laughs) you're like, what? I'm I'm just worshiping. (laughs) It's up to Jesus to decide. Okay. Jesus always redeems the criticism too. Listen to this in verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. That doesn't mean that when you are worshiping God and someone criticizes you, Jesus is going to come down and say, well, don't bother this man. Don't bother this woman. He's worshiping me. She's worshiping me. Jesus redeems it because what happens is that worship is laid before Jesus. 
And we may endure the criticism, but here's what I want us to do. Think of, let, let's, let's get an aroma of worship going on. So if someone is criticizing us, the sense of smell of worship overtakes the other people's criticism. That doesn't mean we go around acting like jerks. Okay, this, this is not licensed to go into everywhere and say, no, I'm worshiping, so you have to leave me alone. You know, let, let's understand that God created us to worship him, but he, we have to love other people and that he does desire a relationship with those other people. And he's using your worship to connect with those people. See, our worship should not disconnect other people. Our worship is to connect with God, but he also is going to draw people to himself through us worshiping. Does that make sense? And we can't let others' criticism hinder our worship. Jesus laid her best at Mary's feet. Remember her glory? Boom, down at the feet of Jesus. Let's read on. This is verse, uh, I'm going to start in 10 again, and this is uh, 10 through the end. This is Jesus is worth our priority. Listen to this. Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. This is not a contradiction to Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. What you do for the least of these, you've done for me. People have argued this. You know, I talk about the old men that sit in a conference room and argue on Scripture, that this has been argued about, well, Jesus is saying we don't have to do anything for the poor now. Phew, I'm glad we only had to go through half a chapter of that. This is priority. All right, Jesus is bringing it into priority here. Jesus is here. He says, you will always have the poor with you, but not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. See, when I say Jesus is worth our priority, uh, we have to understand this, that as we focus on Jesus first, we give him our best and our, our sights are set on Jesus, what happens is we end up taking care of other things. Let's, let's look at the context here. Jesus is with them in physical body. He is fully God, fully man, and he is present in physical body with them in this home. And he's saying, this is right to worship me. You know, for us, you know, Jesus is not going to come strolling in here and sit down. But the Spirit of God is... The Holy Spirit, the presence of God is with us in this room. And when God, when Jesus is our priority, what happens is that spirit is alive in us and we are worshiping and we are made more sensitive to the needs around us. Let's understand something that as followers of Christ, we serve Jesus. And serving Jesus takes on the form of many things. This, This week... A lot of you went to Agape Meals and sat and, and had meals with the homeless and the less fortunate. You served. You tried to go get the chocolate cake before it was all gone to give to the people. You were running your tail off trying to get tea back and forth because it was hot. You were bringing the entrees or some of you were sitting there engaging in conversation with people who are hurting and broken. And you are serving Jesus through that. Serving Jesus meant sitting at a table with those less fortunate. Are we tracking there? I think when we get misguided in this is we focus on I have to serve the poor and we've missed Jesus. We're like, Jesus, hang on, I'm serving the poor for you. Or Jesus, I'm, I'm ministering this person in my workplace for you and Jesus doesn't even have the priority. Let's, let's refocus here, make Jesus the priority. He will give you the sensitivity to see the needs around you and then give you the ability and the equipping to meet those needs. 
And that worship happens as a result of us focusing on Jesus every time. When I say Jesus is the top priority in your life, it means to give him the greatest worth, place the greatest value on your relationship with Jesus. Let me, let me kind of re-hit this, and I hit this as often uh, every couple months, but let me give you a list of priorities here. Your first priority, absolute number one, is your relationship with God, period. Your relationship with God. Number two, if you are married, it is your spouse, Number three, it is your kids. If you have two and three backwards, let's do some reprioritization. After your kids is your job. This is where God has to hit me because, well, I'm a pastor, so number one and number four kind of go together, you know? No. Mm -mm. If all I do is study Scripture for you, it's like me serving the meals at the homeless at the agape and I never eat. I feed you, but I starve to death. My relationship with God is priority over this church. My relationship with Heather is priority over this church. My relationship with my kids is priority over this church. If I'm going to stand up here and teach you godly priorities and expect you to live your life by them, then I better be modeling them. And if my marriage suffers as a result of me being a pastor, it's going to be addressed. If my relationship with my kids suffer, it's going to be addressed. My first and foremost priority is my relationship with Jesus. One of my mentors said, you know what? Ministry is the overflow of what God's doing in your life. So if God's not doing anything in my life, I got nothing to share with you. What I love about our staff, every Monday we send a a devotion amongst our staff and we share God's fingerprints or God's stories because I see a weekend from this perspective. You see it and our staff sees it from a very different perspective. And we share what God is doing in the ministry. If we are not staying full as staff and leaders, then we have nothing to give and we can't see what God is doing amongst our church. Our staff raise the bar on their life spiritually so that we can be equipped, qualified leaders that God can use. That's the priority. I'll take it outside of church for a minute. It's your home, husbands, fathers. Your priority is Jesus first. I understand. I'm a father and I'm a husband. I understand. You hit that door and the kids need something. Something's got to be fixed. There's always something going on. There's always a project to be done. You get in and you've got to go back out to the store because uh, you've got to go now pick up school supplies. That's starting soon. Or you've got this or uh, so-and-so's at so-and-so's house. Can you go? And it, you just hit and the list goes. You know what? If you don't have your priority set on Jesus, all those things become hard tasks and it becomes something that you can get bitter in your own home. When your relationship with Jesus is priority, the grace, the love, and the mercy overflows to your spouse and to your kids and to those in your home, those in your neighborhood, and then things can stay focused. Doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. Trust me. One of the things I do in premarital counseling is this process. When you walk in the door, you may not be home. If you've had a rough day, before you vent that day to everyone in your home, go in your room, take 10, maximum 15 minutes, get yourself with Jesus, pray, sing, read, read scripture, and you come out of that room and say, I'm home. 
And when you're home, you'd be fully present with your family. But you spend that priority with Jesus. We think it's counterproductive. But like I said a minute ago, when we give Jesus our best and our first, it makes everything else better. It raises the bar. So let's give Jesus that priority. Jesus didn't demand that Mary anoint him for burial. I mean, Jesus didn't say, hey, uh, Mary, hey, I know you got that bottle of nice perfume. I was thinking just a really cool thing that would happen at Simon's house is, you know, about 15 minutes into this, you come up and kind of break that over my head. And I think that would just kind of get the night of worship going. You know, I mean, I'm getting ready to go to the cross. And so I think it'd be kind of worth it. You know, I'll get you back. I'll pay you back. No, Mary had been so transformed by Jesus. You see, when her brother was dead and laying in the tomb, Jesus asked Mary, he said, do you believe I am who I say I am? Do you believe I'm the resurrection and the life? Am I your Lord and, my, and your God? Mary's life was so transformed by Jesus that it was an act of worship. And Jesus desires us to worship him. He gave his best. The perfect spotless lamb walked this road to Calvary did not have to do it, but chose to do it. And all he wants from us in return is our worship, our life, for us to bow before him and say, my Lord and my God. Because we were the first thing on his mind when he went to the cross. And what I love about Jesus is he endured it for the joy set before him. The joy is the relationship. So I want you to spend some time reflecting this week. Is Jesus your priority? Is he worth your best? Do you give him your best? I mean, reflect on that. You know, take a look at your home. You know, look at the structure of your home. Look at the structure of your calendar. Is Jesus getting your priority? Doesn't mean everything in your home is going to be fixed, but at least you're worshiping Jesus. It doesn't mean you neglect everything else but it gives you so much more power, strength, and ability to deal with everything else going on in the home. And so what some may call what we do waste, let's bow before the king and worship. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you uh, for showing us such a beautiful display of worship. Um the humility involved and everything that was set in place. And and Jesus, I just pray that you help us. Help us to, to understand more what worship is, what a life of worship is, that you just don't want our stuff. You weren't after the perfume. You wanted Mary's heart. But just as you've shown us through Scripture, that you want our heart, you want us, you are after us. Father, we just lay ourselves before you this morning. We lay our pride at the foot of the cross. We lay our sin. We lay our hurts. We lay our struggles. And really, whatever glory we have mustered up for ourselves, we lay that at the foot of the cross. Father, help us to to see that 
this act of worship is a beautiful thing. Sometimes all I feel that I can lay at the cross is something that, that is ugly, that's broken, that's scarred. But I lay it down and you make it something beautiful. And so may our worship this morning and may our worship throughout our week be just pleasing to you. May it be a sweet scent that you enjoy. Father, help us. Give us the courage to look at our priorities. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to have some just gut honest conversations in our homes to realign priorities that have gotten out of line. Show us what it looks like to give our best to you. And Father, help us to be sensitive to people around us so that we can share your gospel and your kingdom. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.